Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt, and this is The Hangover, a limited-run podcast from the Dispatch and Dispatch Media that aims to figure out how Republicans took the shortest trip for a party in nearly 70 years from total control in Washington to absolute minority. The GOP doesn't seem very interested in understanding why, so we'll have to do it for them. How did the surprise success of 2016 give way to defeat, an effort to overturn the election, and the siege of the U.S. Capitol? And what comes next? You could argue that Parker Polling was perhaps the most successful Republican strategist of 2020. Under her leadership, the National Republican Campaign Committee, the party's House election arm, stunned the political world by adding seats when the nearly unanimous expectation was that the Democrats would expand their majority thanks to Joe Biden's coattails. If she doesn't seem like a political consultant, that's because she doesn't think like one. She's straightforward, isn't afraid to say she doesn't know the answer sometimes, and manages to speak both with authority and humility. As the Republicans emerge from their post-election stupor, it will be essential that they can learn not just from their failures, but from the successes of political professionals like her. Parker, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, It's certainly uh, good of you to join us because I think you can put some perspective on this that probably nobody else in America can. Um, So were you raised a Republican? Did you grow up in a Republican household? Sort of. My dad was a Republican. My mom was mostly not. They weren't super political, Um, like very socially liberal, fiscally conservative-ish New York Republican, if anything, but not not a political family. Pataki-ish. Yeah, definitely okay. voted for George Pataki. Yeah. When when did you know that you were a Republican? In high school, in eleventh uh, grade, my high school history teacher, who was amazing, is amazing, was just expounding on the how wonderful the um, the New Deal was and FDR and all of, you know, how that pulled us out of the Great Depression. And I just started arguing with him. And um, that was that was kind of my first realization. Oh, I'll have to introduce you to my sons. You can coach them through how not to talk about the League of Nations with your fourth grade teacher. (laughs) Okay, so this is this realization comes to you that you're a conservative but, but when do you say, I'm a Republican, I care about the Republican Party, I want to invest myself in the apparatus of the GOP? When does that happen? I think the thing I remember clearest is the 1994 elections, and when, which I was in high school for, and the um, Republicans taking back the majority in 1994, and I was legitimately excited about it. I think I wrote a paper about it. I read, you know, everything I could get my hands on about how and why it had happened and kind of the groundwork that had been laid for years. And it, it, I mean, it's hard to remember that, you know, that it was such a huge deal for the house to change hands for the first time since, um, you know, the fifties. Um, so it, that's what I remember really clearly being like, this is my team. This is where I am. And, uh, I think for a lot of people of our generation, that was a moment, right? That was like a, a thing. Um, so when did you choose to become a professional Republican? When did you choose, when did you decide that you want to make a career out of politics? I started um, in college getting really involved with college Republicans. And everyone who knows me rolls my eyes because there are so many things that's, that link back to college Republicans for me. And um, I, you know, volunteered on a bunch of campaigns in college and met some of my lifelong friends and some of my future employers through college Republicans at that time. And that really kind of set me on the path um, of of doing this professionally. My first job I moved to DC for was to work for the College Republican National Committee. So that was kind of the the beginning. And one of the people you met there was Patrick McHenry, who, who would go on to be a boss, and I assume something of a mentor for you, right? Yes, absolutely. He was a a close friend of mine and, um, yes, became my boss, but was not, um, we, no one would have voted him most likely to become a member of Congress in 1997. (laughs) Talk a little bit about Patrick McHenry because his story I think is relevant here. What's, what's his story? Yeah, he, um, grew up in, in Western North Carolina outside of Charlotte and similarly got really involved in college Republicans in college. Um, you know, uh, to the point where, 
I think to the detriment of his schoolwork at a certain point. And, um, you know, he became the chairman of the North Carolina College Republicans and then became the national treasurer of the College Republicans. And, you know, just really had that political bug and in college ran for office, ran for state house. And we, you know, he, he lost, um, he won the Republican primary and lost in the general election to one of his high school classmates' dads. Um, but he was super young and brash and um, very well, conservative. Yes, very conservative. And when he ran for Congress in 2010, all of us kind of frankly laughed at him. Um, we thought he, he doesn't have a chance. Um, he had gotten elected to um, the state house, but we just we just thought this was a ridiculous lark. Um, but I did. I gave him fifty dollars, which was more than I could afford. And I went down to North Carolina and knocked on doors for him and um, tried to hide my Yankee accent. And um, he won, you know, by 85 votes um, in, in a runoff. And, um, and, you know, it was a few years later, I was doing different stuff. And he kind of called me out of the blue and asked if I would come be his chief of staff. And I said, yes, obviously. And then ended up being there for 12 years. You were a law student at the time when you decided to make the leap and leave a lucrative and respected career as an attorney behind in favor of the only profession, you know, used car dealers beat both of us, right? Uh, right. Both, both, both politicos <laughs> and journalists are, you, you came down here to the bottom of the ladder uh, with us and you spent 10 years on the Hill. Over that time, McHenry, being chief of staff to McHenry became more and more relevant as he climbed the ladder inside the house, right? He ended up being the deputy whip. Is that right? Yeah, he um, ended up being the chief deputy whip. And when I started there, you know, that was one of the things we talked about is he really wanted to make an impact on the place. He wanted to um, be, you know, consequential. He wanted to be a leader. He he didn't know at the time whether he wanted to be in leadership or maybe chairman of the Financial Services Committee were kind of the things we talked about early on. Um, but he knew he wanted someone who could help um, kind of guide, you know, build that path uh, forward. And And, you know, that's what we did. So when the leadership of the NRCC was looking for someone to run the NRCC for this cycle, uh, did you, for the 2020 cycle, did you think of yourself, were you like, yeah, this makes sense. This is the next logical thing for me. Or were you like, this is weird. This is weird. Um, you know, it was, it was presented to me as a conversation was had, who should run the NRCC? And somebody blurted out my name and it was not, um, no one asked me. Um, but, you know, it's a management job. At the end of the day, you know, I have worked on campaigns. I've always been in politics. I had many people who worked for me who had worked on many more races than I did, who knew a lot more about the intricacies of polling or digital fundraising or messaging. Everyone who worked for me knew more about something than I did. Um, but I think we did, you know, Chairman Emmer and I, I think we hired really well. And we, um, it, you know, the, the, at the end of the day, it's 100 staffers. And, you know, we raised and spent around $280 million. So it's, it's more about kind of captaining um, the ship than it is, you know, necessarily being the pre preeminent expert in, you know, well, you st- turnout you still, models. You still have to know which side the bread's buttered on. You still have to have a theory of the case. So the theory of the case going into 2020 was, I'll tell you, my, my view, and I think was pretty close to the conventional wisdom, was the Republicans will probably gain some seats in the House because the Democrats won seats they shouldn't have in 2018. So this is the reality that we've been living in in American politics really since 94, which is president gets elected. uh, And then the next the next cycle in the midterm, the other team wins a bunch of seats, including some that aren't natural fits. Right. Uh, Democrats win uh, in the South, Demo- uh, Republicans win in the Northeast. They're where they're not supposed to be. And then in the next quadrennial election, there's some evening up. So it looked like the Republicans were in a pretty good position to gain some seats. But the de- but the Democrats uh, had the issues, right? The Democrats had the issues, and the issue was Trump. Right. 
when you were thinking about when you take this job and you say, okay, I got to do this, you're already the recruit Republicans are facing recruitment problems. They're facing retirement problems. And the growing narrative is, uh, you know, the Democrats are probably going to gain seats in the House. How did you see the how did you see the shape of the world as you were thinking about that? When did you so this is like 2019, early 2019? Yeah, I mean, I think we started with the same premise that you just mentioned. We had 31 Democrats who were sitting in seats won by Donald Trump. And that is not a comfortable place to be um, if you're if you're a House Democrat. So we knew that um, those folks who were in districts that had been won by anything between, you know, 30 plus points in Minnesota 7 down to, you know, a few thousand votes, that those those folks were going to have to walk a fine line. Um, so we we thought we could put them in an uncomfortable spot over the next two years. They were going to have to vote with it. You know, they all ran as these centrist moderates, but they're now becoming part of a caucus that is increasingly um, left. And they were going, we thought we could, we could force them to sort of answer for that. And that was kind of the theory of the case at the very beginning. And, you know, we needed to, it was a, it was definitely a goal to recruit um, candidates who looked more like the districts they wanted to represent. We wanted to create a more diverse Republican conference. We wanted absolutely more women, more people of color. And that was, you know, an intentional focus of ours was to try to get more folks like that into the race. And in, in some of the, you know, most of the seats we flipped were flipped by either a woman or a minority. And I think that recruitment effort truly paid off in that it helped gain just uh, give you a little bit of a margin over kind of your um, standard Republican vote. It gave us a few more votes, which is what we needed. Well, and certainly it stands to reason that at a time where the, the and we'll talk about the messaging against Democrats, uh, which they have acknowledged your theory of the case, right? Democrats have now said after the fact, yeah, the uh, defund the police stuff and the radical stuff was a, an albatross around our necks. You know, one of the things that people in the political press often forget, you know, right now in like Missouri, for example, people are talking about a Todd Akin do over with Eric Greitens, Greitens, uh, the former uh, governor of Missouri and how that all happens. But there is a tendency to forget how Ilhan Omar or another member of the House can, can it, it works both ways. And and certainly branding one. The problem with having notable members is that they are notable <laughs> they, and they uh their their fame and infamy travels widely so the if the argument from democrats going into 2020 is that donald trump's a racist and the people who support donald trump is a racist evil person and the and republicans who support him are by extension that increases the value of having he's not just racist he's sexist having women and having people of color to say I am not Donald Trump. I am a person for this district, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at Orange County, Michelle Steele and Young Kim, you know, they do not look like Donald Trump. Um, and of course, their opponents tried to paint them as Trump clones, but um, they they outran the top of the ticket, both of them, um, you know, Young Kim by more than 10 points. Um, and I And I think that, you know, even just that, that distinction really did make a difference, that that was hard to make that stick. Um, in the way they had done more effectively in 2018. And you also, and I'm thinking here about Kim uh, and thinking about, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on her name, uh, the new freshman congresswoman from South Florida, whose name is escaping me right now. Maria Elvira Salazar. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, these people wanted to hustle. These were hard working candidates, right? Uh, and especially when you have competitive districts. It makes it, you know, I think one of the things people talk about this a little bit, we talk about candidate qualities a lot. Uh, we talk about ethnicity. We talk about gender. We talk about uh, blue collar, all of those things. But when you're talking about a house race that is even, you know, you're going to have 200,000 votes, you're going to have 250,000 votes. It may be in a house race, uh, potentially. Uh, hustle counts for a lot, right? Finding people who are willing to put in the, the hours, the man or woman hours to do it makes a big difference. How do you know 
when you have a good recruit versus not a good recruit? What told you you had a good recruit versus not a good recruit? Well, both of those women in particular banged down our door. I mean, I would love to take credit for recruiting them, but they were like, let me in, I'm running, you know? And um, there's something to be said for that. Like recruitment is important, but um, I also remember Ashley Hinson, um, who is now the congresswoman from Iowa's first district. I hadn't even really started yet. And I get a call from Joni Ernst's chief of staff who says, I've got this state rep here in my office. She wants to run for Congress. Can you talk to her? And I'm like, I don't even know where the office is. You know, I mean, I was just, it was brand new. Um, but yeah, some of these folks just, they, both Salazar and Kim had run the cycle before. And so, you know, there is value in that. They knew, they knew the mistakes they had made. They knew where the opportunities lie. And um, that, but that amount, those I mean, young Kim would wear you out, you know, and in a good way, you know, she called me relentlessly, like, can you get me help here? How about this? I need a surrogate for this fundraiser. You know, what about some help over, you know, and it's good. I mean, that's what you want. You need to be advocating for yourself. And she was just relentless. And that's how you, you know, outperform the top of your ticket by 11 points. Um, it's that kind of work. So I'm, we're going to get out of the timeline a little bit, but I promise I'll come back because I want I want you to walk us through what how things progressed. But one of the biggest takeaways from election night, and this is really why I was eager to talk to you, one of the big takeaways from uh, the 2020 election was no mandate for anybody because the country obviously uh, has plenty of appetite, and there. Are, I, we're not going to bore people. We're not going to bore people talking about vote differentials to too great a degree. But if you look at Maine, if you look at Nebraska, if you look at districts in Florida, if you look at Kim's district in Cal, the district in California, uh, some districts in Ohio, you can see that Americans are quite comfortable. Americans who voted for Joe Biden for president, a lot of them were quite comfortable with being represented by Republicans in the House, and that that. I'm careful about using the term ticket splitting because there isn't as much ticket splitting as people said. But let's just say the degree of comfort that the nation as a whole events with divided government in this uh, was the, maybe the most fascinating to me takeaway of 2020, that by the political, the political metrics that we're used to and the way that we think about this stuff, this was setting up to be another wave election. Right. So we're going into 2020 and it's starting to look like it's going to be another wave election. Trump is consistently down nine, 10 points uh, and the Democrats lead the generic ballot by five points, six points, seven points, click, click week after week. The great consistency. Um, how did you see the race? Let's say that we're in. Primary season. It's early 2020, and there are some difficult primaries that are taking place on the Republican side. The polls look bad. Coronavirus has come to town. Uh, and how did so? At what point did you get alarmed? Uh, did you get alarmed? What was that like? Yeah, I actually was going to ask pre pandemic or post because I felt like we were in a really good spot actually going into like. January, February, um, where, you know, people hadn't really realized coronavirus. I thought, you know, we are right where we want to be. Um, this is, this is, we're, we're getting the, you know, the right candidates into the primaries. Primaries hadn't really happened yet, but I feel like we're, we're executing well. And then coronavirus hit. And that I think, you know, frankly was definitely a source of panic. First of all, we we're looking at our fundraising number is going to completely dry up. You know, the economy is going to tank. All of our donors are going to go away. We're not going to have any money. The president's numbers are going to tank. They're going to, he's going to drag down all of our candidates. I mean, it was, I, I had waking nightmares that this was 2008, you know, you following on from a wave year, a presidential candidate loses and you lose a whole bunch more seats in the house. And I was bound and I did not want to preside over 2008. Um, I will say that I think the real, real beacon of hope that came through all of that was late May when we won that California special election yeah, um, yeah, yeah. in, in, in South, Southern California, California 25, you know, the, 
incumbent member, um, Katie Hill, had had resigned, and it well, was. I think you're understating a little bit with resigned. There was, and I don't. I'm not trying to pile on to anybody, but this California 25 became a really important race, not because there was goat oriented sexualized content on the internet or the introduction of the term thruple into the American political uh, lexicon, uh, but also because of what the district was like and who she was like. So you had in Katie Hill prior to the revelations by her very unfortunate choice in husbands, it seems like, uh, prior to these revelations, you have sort of an archetype for this new Democratic brand. Uh, you look in Virginia, Abigail Spanberger is the other one in Virginia who's, real, you know, national security background, uh, moderate, uh, speaking out against excesses on the left in the Democratic Party, really going after that and suitable for a traditionally Republican district in California 25. So when she gets incinerated and has to resign, this immediately becomes a litmus test for you and for Republicans to can we, and it's in California, in a district that I don't know what uh, Trump would go on to lose that district by, but had lost before and was going to lose again. Yeah, um, we had, Trump had lost it by seven. And then the incumbent Republican congressman, Steve Knight, had lost it by nine. So not only was it bad, but like the trend was not our friend, you know, it was going the wrong direction. Trump went on to lose it by 10 points um, this most recent in 2020. So, you know, first it was like, well, you know, we we don't have a lot of chance at winning this thing, but we ought to fight, you know? And so we had, Steve Knight was thinking, decided to run again. And frankly, a lot of people thought this makes sense. He's got name ID. It's very expensive to buy name ID in Southern California. So he's, he might be our guy, but we also had this um, Navy fighter pilot named Mike Garcia, never run for office before. And he was already in the race. He was running against Katie Hill, you know, in the November election. And he did not, bow out, um, you know, and, and I think he faced some pressure to do so. And he ended up beating Steve Knight in the primary and definitely out hustled him, outworked him. And Mike Garcia was the perfect candidate for us in, in that election and in 2020, you know, um, obviously he had never run for office before. So you're, you're like the Democrats. We love that candidate without any, uh, baggage. Um, it's a big aviation district. There's a lot of aviation there the naval background. He, you know, um, he, and then he ran against this woman named assembly woman named Christy Smith, who was a pretty much lifelong politician, seemed like the right candidate, you know, a mom and, um, you know, seemed moderate and all that, but he just ran circles around her. And, um, so that, that election, we won that race by 10 points in a, in a district that no one gave us a shot. It was the first time we had flipped a seat in California since 1996. And we're like, okay, if we can win in California 25, we can win anywhere. Um, and I think a lot of the media coverage was like, well, this was fluky. You know, this was a lot of weird stuff happening. But if you think about, you know, he outperformed with Hispanic voters, you know, he, he, he was a template for what we would see in 2020. And you, you mentioned special elections right at the top. You know, this is why, this is why we actually, it was a pod, sorry. I listened to you um, taking over for Jonah and you talked about special elections and why we pay attention to them. And, uh, you know, this is why they can be harbingers of what's to come. Or at least they will tell you what voters are because people lie to pollsters all the time. Right. It's not the kind of lying that partisans tend to, the, the Bradley effect kind of stuff is way overstated. We don't have evidence to support the claims about all the extravagant claims about shy Trump and all that stuff. But people do lie to pollsters about the issues that matter to them. They do lie to pollster and not lie necessarily, but they may not fully understand their own thinking and reasonings and motivations and how likely a voter is, how, how likely a voter is, is not necessarily how likely that voter tells you they're going to be. And when you have a special election, you get to take a core sample and say, "Okay, here we are. This is real life. Who's really going to go vote and who's really not going to go vote? Okay, so you have this early success. You have this early harbinger that says there is a model if we have the right candidate for the district and they don't get it it doesn't become a rubber stamp. He's a rubber stamp for Trump thing. So this makes you feel good. But at the same time. 
you're looking at Colorado, you're looking at Georgia, you're looking at Florida, and you're seeing primary campaigns that are producing some winners that are going to be problematic for candidates in other places, right? You're going, you're uh, Bobert, uh, and I can't believe I'm drawing a blank on her name. She's so famous. Uh, Oh, Marjorie Taylor Green. Marjorie Taylor Green. I knew it was a three namer. Uh, and you've got Marjorie Taylor Green. You've got uh, the gal running in Trump's district down in Florida that the president's backing. And you've got QAnon. Like you just have it's on. And you have these folks. What are you thinking about that? Well, that's going on. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I mean, honestly, we just didn't have a relationship with her because whoever won that primary was going to win the general election, not a competitive district at all. And and sort of the same thing on the other in the other direction with Laura Loomer, you know, like that was yeah, not a competitive right. district. So we never even, you know, and 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 Lauren Boebert, I mean, listen, we worked with her very well over the course. You know, she beat an incumbent in a primary, very unexpected um, but our job is not to pick primary winners and losers. Our job is to take a nominee and make sure that they win the seat. So is it a little was, bit picking winners? Like, do you ever, I mean, uh, I'm sure I'm trying to think who would say it. I'm sure Loomer would say, well, the NRCC is against me, right? The NRC, so, so there's some, whether it's true or not, there's a perception that the NRCC gets involved, right? Yeah, no, there's always that perception, but I don't think it's borne out by reality. Um, you know, I think, I mean, all of our public spending is, is, is all of our spending is public. So you can see where we spend money. Um, but you know, we, we have to make data driven decisions. And when we look at a district like, um, like that district, which honestly, I can't even remember the number of, because I really, it's you know, it just wasn't a place where we focused. Right. Yeah. But Colorado three, you know, we had to keep an eye on because, um, you know, you had now a, an incumbent or a, a nominee with no name ID and, you know, didn't have a ton of money. And we, so we had to, we had to focus on that one. Um, but we also didn't pay attention to Georgia 14 because, you know, that, that, that race was done, um, once the primary was over. So we, our mission is to get to a Republican majority. And so we pick to the extent we pick winners and losers, it's which districts do we think we can win? Um, and where do we have a shot? And we have to write off, you know, frankly, two thirds, you know, I mean, at most we would only talk, I would say our biggest, biggest sheet that had every single race we could conceivably worry about might have a hundred races on it out of 435. So in the house is not the Senate and the Senate is not the house, or at least not yet. Uh, but in uh, as I say, once they get rid of the filibuster, they'll just be the house with better parking places and smaller lapel pins. Um, but the the reality that Mitch McConnell and his team in the Senate came up with through their outside expenditures and through was we're going to fight these primaries. We're going to get in the primaries. We're going to fight. And if we see a, a candidate who's not right and, you know, this in the coming year, we're going to see millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars spent in Republican Senate primaries across the United States in this battle between MAGA America and Mitch McConnell's America, right? You're going to have the traditional Republican Party versus the nouveau Republican Party and all of that stuff. Why isn't that the right thing for House Republicans to do? You know, I it was it's a decision that's been made sort of, you know, by the leaders, you know, like by Kevin McCarthy and Chairman Tom Emmer, and, and we're not going to get involved in primaries. And it's gone back to like 2010 is the last time that I can remember that the NRC, that the party really got involved in a primary. And, um, you know, I think it's just, they are so, House races are so different from Senate races. I think it's a lot harder to um, execute in the House race. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I, I could make an argument either way on what the right decision is, truthfully, but that was the decision that was made, you know, by my predecessors and, and still in place. And so I think, you know, that was kind of the rubric we were operating under and it does make com certain conversations easier. It, obviously there are places where you end up, you don't get the right candidate out of the primary and that race falls off the board. Um, and that, that happens and that's the downside, but the upside is, um, you know, we, we are friends with everybody. <laughs> so by the time they get to Congress, you know, they're like, okay, these, these folks helped me, um, or they stayed out of the way. 
And when you look at, let's take uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So she is in Congress and she's trying now to, this is a term that I use for all people, uh, not her. I use it for presidents. I use it for everybody. But housebroken, right? Which is, this is where we do this. This is where we don't do this. This is how you get on this committee. This is where you go over there. You have to learn how to do the stuff. And, you know, there's this, this is not the first freshman class of, in Congress that doesn't have any idea. I'm sure that in a decade spent on the Hill, you wish you could have taken every new member class aside and said, here are the 10 things that you fundamentally have misunderstood about the way that Congress works. So as you think about that, because you're, there are very few people who have been successful, uh, who have, have risen to be the king of the hill among the hill rats, uh, that you had that you conquered Congress to rise to a, to a high staff position there, and then went out and did the campaign side. There are very few people that have had the success that you've had in both places. What would you tell if you could if you could run your clinic for freshman congressmen and women? What would you tell them? What would be the curriculum? I mean, one of the things I I think, and you know, leadership staff of which I was once one are like the most cynical and jaded people on the planet, you know? So just with that, with that caveat, I think every time <laughs> it's a dark, I hear it's a dark place, it's a dark, it's a dark place. Yeah. Every time I hear someone say, I'm going to do it differently. I'm like, Oh gosh, bless your heart. You know, like that's not going to turn out well. I mean, it's, it's, I guess you could say it's sort of depressing, but it's like, I'm going to not have a chief of staff or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be my own chief of staff. Just There's all kinds of these ideas that I'm going to do it differently than anyone has ever done it before. And that fails uh, 100% of the time. Um, you know, so I think part of it is, and, you know, my old boss, when he, Patrick McHenry, when he first got to Congress, he will tell you, he like tried to light everything, including himself on fire. And he had, it took him a while to learn. And so he kind of adopted this role of trying to mentor freshmen that came in, especially the younger folks um, who maybe were coming into their first elected office. Some of them, it's almost, you know, it's almost their first real job. Um, and, you know, his advice was always kind of like, sit down and listen and learn and, you know, do way more local TV than you do national TV. Um, you know, go home every weekend. Don't, don't, you know, don't think you're bigger than you are, you know, just learn the rhythms and the, um, and the personnel and about this place before you start sticking your head up, you know, and that was advice that he didn't follow as a freshman and wished he had. Um, and, and, you know, I think there's, there's a lot to be said for, there's, you know, the quieter members who are, you know, kind of just figuring the place out before they get into you trouble. Actual, you mean actually legislating? Do you mean actually legislating and not just being to, you mentioned Jonah before, uh, the parliament of pundits, uh, right. of people who are, uh, who are like, uh, supernova stars outgassing their opinions on everything, but not accomplishing stuff. What do you wish that primary voters in the Republican Party understood that they don't. What what if you could if you could teach them, you could say, come to my clinic, uh, and Parker will tell you the secret sauce that you don't know about American politics and how Congress works, primary voters. What would you tell them? I mean, the thing is, it's a place of relationships. And the people that are most successful in in Congress, in my opinion, are those who are able to build relationships. And so you are if you choose someone who is just fight, fight, angry, you know, blow up the system, they're unlikely to be super successful. And, you know, choosing someone who is more thoughtful and deliberative and, and wants to, you know, work the system might be actually to your advantage in the long run. Um, and, and, you know, when we throw the bums out, every, every few years, you actually have a Congress that is less effective. You have members that are less representative of their districts. You have more work done by, uh, you know, lobbyists and staff and outside organizations. And, and, you know, what you should want is a member who, you know, wants to be there for a while, who wants to learn the place, who wants to build relationships and, and wants to succeed and, and grow. And, um, that is not a, I don't think a winning message for primary voters. No, uh, no, 
But uh, what is always a winning message is uh, these elites have the goods. They won't let you have them. This would be simple and easy, but because they're corrupt, they won't let you, they won't let you have these good and delicious things. Uh, I will. So how, at, at what point do you start to become genuinely optimistic? Because my number, as I just tell you my experience, so I'm going through, I'm making, I've got my lists and my maps in uh, 2020, and my Democrat number starts out at like 15, and then it's dropping. And then at the end, polling numbers start going, and I got a fresh round of polling and said, right at the end, like, uh-oh, actually, not uh-oh in for, I don't care who people vote for, but uh-oh in the sense of like, these Republicans actually, may, maybe the car's in a slide here. And going into election night, my prediction, my assumption was that Democrats would still gain seats, that they were still going to gain seats. When you went into election night 2020, what was your expectation? I did not feel genuinely optimistic until they called Florida 27. Um, uh, I, you know, we did, we, our final staff meeting was Saturday before the election. We talked through all the races and then we went around the room and our consensus was plus three. And I thought, oh, we are way too, you know, we're too drinking optimistic. our own Kool-Aid. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and a lot of it was kind of, you know, to use a current term, being gaslit by um, kind of the, the prognosticators and the pundits who sorry. we talked to. <laughs> oh no, sorry. But we talked to these guys on a daily basis and be like, listen, we think we're we're in good shape. You know, we think most of our races are toss-ups. You know, we we feel like we're in a good position to um, to win a lot of these seats. And they're like, nope. The Dems think they have seven seats that they're going to flip in Texas. I'm like, I don't see it. I cannot see it. And I would wake up every morning with this knot in my stomach of like, what if everything is wrong? <laughs> what if all of our data is wrong? What if all of our polling is wrong? So like, I should have felt optimistic because we were generally showing like a boatload of toss-up races, possibly slightly moving in our direction. But I just felt this, I could not be, I, I definitely never relaxed or felt optimistic. I, the whole time I felt like, what if, you know, what if the Democrats are right? Well, certainly it's true that if it, it's, it's, a, it's a real interesting catch-22. Uh, if Trump had done as poorly as he was forecast, right? If Trump had, I forget, he ended up, I forget the final number on the national popular but if he had ended up losing by nine points, the Democrats would have definitely won seats, right? So on the one hand, it's, it's, it's a strange experience. Republicans owe their gains in the House in part to Donald Trump's overperformance, but they also owe their minority to Donald Trump. Uh, so it's, it's, I think people fail to understand the degree to which Folks like you and these candidates and all of this other stuff, they don't make the political environment in which you don't make the political environment in which you're living. Donald Trump was already the president when you took over. You were dealing with the world as it was, not as you wished it would be. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, we spent we spent a lot of time thinking about, OK, how much can we outrun the president? By? Like, what is what, if, how much could he lose by and us still pick up seats, you know? And um, I don't know that we ever really knew the exact answer. It's like kind of a, it's kind of a ballpark game, but um, we felt like we could outrun him in, in a bunch of districts. But to your point, if you're right, if he had lost by a massive margin, we would have been toast. And, um, and there, the country is, so polarized we are we are borderline parliamentary elections at this point Preach. you know that like Preach. you can barely you know there's just there's only so much room you could you know our we had a couple candidates that would outrun the president by double digits but it's it's a short list um especially for a challenger it, it's easier to do as an incumbent okay so what so you pick up seats are you were you ecstatic? Were you like, you can't believe that you actually pulled this off to what was, what was that feeling like? Yeah. And like I said, I think it was, they called those the Florida 26 and Florida 27, which are two Miami districts. Both were held by Democrats. Um, we had spent a ton of money in Florida 26, where we had the mayor of Miami Dade County, Carlos Jimenez running one of our top recruits, actually somebody we worked to get. 
Um, and we had spent zero money in Florida 27, the district next door, where we had Maria Elvira Salazar next to zero money running against Donna Shalala, um, where, you know, we had one poll that showed it close, but, you know, a lot of people didn't think we could, we could win very expensive media market whatever. So they call those two races like pretty close together and pretty early in the night. Um, I have no concept of time, but it was probably like 10 o'clock at night. Um, and we were like, holy, like this, this is happening, (laughs) you know, um, there, something is happening, but you know, we went to, I think I went to bed at four and we still had a ton of races. Oh, um, a week later we still had, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we didn't really know. I just knew we were picking up seats. I thought it would be in the double digits at that point, like when I went to bed. Um, but but there was a lot we didn't know. Um, and, you know, the range was probably like, you know, we probably were in the 10 to 20. I remember having this conversation with one of McCarthy's comms people. And I said, tomorrow morning, Nancy Pelosi cannot 100% say that she is the speaker. Like that, the majority is not certain. And every, no one really covered that but at that moment like it was not 100 percent, sir there were so many races unknown at that point um okay we have i think effectively established your bona fides as not only a person of deep experience here but a person who uh helped steer a successful effort for republican party and in a not so great year for the republican party what happens well, first, let me ask you this. You are the toast of the town. Everybody says, well, the viewers can't see you eye rolling, but you became, it was like, you're a lady, you're a mom kind of lady. You're, and it's like you, you, you hit the right note and people, and people for once, and this is really for once, seem to really appreciate and admire your success. And I think I put, I would say not that, not just because you and Jen O'Malley Dillon are women, but I look at both of you as exemplars of a new generation of the kinds of political managers and the kind of people in that space who are pretty pragmatically minded, who are, who are good, who are impressive. You have this great success. Then we go through this period and we're stopping the steal while we're stealing the election and it, all of this is going on. What are you feeling like as this is going on? So on the one hand, you've had great professional success. On the other hand, the president is trying to steal the election. How does how are you feeling as this is going on? Um, I, you know, I mean, I don't for me personally, and I don't tend to talk to, about myself personally a lot because I'm always just I've always been a staffer, but it was very, very hard. You know, I. Um, I worked in the Capitol building for four and a half years. There were, you know, images of people barricaded in my former office, you know, while cowering in fear. And I, you know, I was very traumatic, even though I wasn't in the building, obviously, um, just to, you know, kind of watch that. So it was, it was really hard because we've, you know, obviously on the house, I thought we should be celebrating, you know, as a party in large part, we have this incredible, class of dynamic um, Republicans that are, the, in my opinion, kind of the new face of the party and the leading edge of where we want to go. And um, but but all anyone's talking about is this. And in, a, and in a normal year, that if that's would have been the story. Right. So yeah. story A, Joe Biden wins and Republicans say, boo. But then the next story is, but in keeping the House, Republicans demonstrate blah, 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 and meet Kim and meet the, and meet here the women of color. And here's the stuff. And it was there. But in order to acknowledge that success, Republicans also had to acknowledge the legitimacy of the election, which was verboten. So it couldn't be your, your success couldn't be trumpeted in the way that it should have because it was outside of the, and I, when I say your success, I mean you and your team and everybody couldn't be touted as it was supposed to be because that was fought against the narrative that the legi- uh, election was legitimate. How concerned are you? I think I've gone back and forth. How concerned are you that Republicans will not take the right cues from 2020? And you're the right cue from 2020, as far as I'm concerned, for Republicans. Your effort, your recruitment, how you guys did it, the messaging that you use, and all of that stuff. So the right 
lesson for Republicans to take away is this is a winning formula. Uh, but how concerned are you that Republicans' fixation on the illegitimacy of the 2020 election will interfere with them taking away the right lessons, good and bad, what to do and what not to do from 2020? I think if that is what we are talking about in 2022, I'm very concerned. Um, I am optimistic and hopeful that um, the party will unite around, I mean, listen, it's a midterm election, like all of us, R or D, the way you run a midterm election is against the party of power, right? So I'm not going to say that we're going to suddenly come out with like great sweeping policy plans, because that's just not what you do in a midterm election. But I think the party can unite around um, an opposition to, to um, you know, what we're starting to see now. You know, we obviously had, I think, a little bit of a Biden honeymoon. We're coming out of COVID. That's great news. But we've also got the conversation about massive tax, tax increases that um, are cloaked in being on the rich and corporations, but, you know, that's not who's going to pay them. Um, you know, you've got the crisis at the border. You've got policy decisions that are happening now that are antithetical to everything we've worked for. So that, I think, is if that's what we're talking about in 2022, and I think that's what, you know, Leader McCarthy and, and Whip Scalise and, and, and Conference Chairman Cheney, I think that's what they want to be talking about. I, I think that's where we need to be. Can you have Republican, but, and, and this is sort of the, the, the pinch point, can you talk about those things if half of Republicans don't think that they really lost the 2020 election? And, and that's sort of the challenge, right? Because I certainly understand why the folks you mentioned and other Republicans of leadership inside the House, outside the House, wherever, I, if I were a Republican, I wouldn't want to talk about it either, right? I wouldn't want to say, hey, let's uh, replay that uh, uh, Sydney, what's her name, the Trump lawyer. Sydney let's, Powell. Yeah, let's replay the Sydney Powell greatest hits again and talk about what fun we had. I wouldn't want to do it either. But, and this is the pinch point, if you don't convince your voters that their guy lost, then they're not going to be... the. Maybe I'll put it this way. Donald Trump wouldn't have been the Republican nominee in 2016, but for the fact that Republicans believed that Mitt Romney had failed, so they wanted to do the opposite, right? That there's a, that's how this goes. Uh, we have increasingly sophisticated primary voters who are, in, as the Democrats demonstrated in 2020, strategic voting is a thing all the way down now and all that stuff. Have Republicans said clearly enough, loudly enough, this is it. But like, I think McConnell has. Do you think that Republicans writ large have said loudly enough to voters, we got to take the lesson from this and move on? I think it's incumbent on leaders of the party to say, you know, we all have a responsibility to restore the confidence in how our elections are conducted, because it really is the bedrock of the entire system. You know, if you don't trust the way that we conduct our elections, you can't trust the government that is elected in those races. So I do think that, you know, there may be, you know, legislative fixes that need to be made, but there may be, you know, commissions that need to look at it, all of those things. But I think at the end of the day, our leaders need to say, our, we are capable, our states, because I think they should be run by the states, our states are capable of executing and conducting fair and free elections, and we have to continue to trust them to do that. And that's one of the things we're looking at now. You know, we're we're seeing right now with Iowa too, where the state conducted an election. Um, it was very, very, very close, but they declared a winner. And you know, and so Marionette Miller Meeks is a is a member of Congress, duly elected by her six vote margin. And frankly, House Democrats are now trying to undermine that. So I think it is really. It, it, all of us need to play a role in saying, you know, we have to trust the election system. We have our duty is to oversee it and make sure that all the rules are followed. But at the end of the day, once the election is done and certified, you know, it's it's time to move on. So you I, I interrupted you when you were going to talk about it. I want to just sort of leave it there uh, as you watched. Where were you when you watched January 6th? It was in my house, which is seven blocks from the Capitol. Um, so we can, we looked at it. I have, you know, my girls, because DC schools are largely closed. My kids were home and we were watching out our front window of 
um, ambulances flying by and police cars and then buses and armored vehicles. I mean, it was just, you know, it was everybody stayed in our houses, you know, so I was not in the middle of everything, you know, the way I would have been a few years ago, but it was very real and very present for us. And how, how did you feel as you, what, what you, you mentioned the feelings that you had for the people in your old committee room or in your old office and all of that stuff. But what was your, what settled on you? I remember that night, I also live about seven blocks from the Capitol. And as the day wore on, I walked down as a reporter at heart, I walked down to go see, uh, and it was, uh, Unlike anything I'd ever seen, there are people who didn't realize the severity of what had just happened, and were, there was, they were still sort of in a carnival mood. Uh, there was re, you could feel it, the palpable, you could smell it in the air. Uh, how did it settle on you? In the end, what was your take? What what lesson or feeling settled on your heart that you kept coming out of that? I mean, I just I found it depressing. You know, it was just so horrifying that you know, obviously that these people engaged in this act, but also that the, they felt it necessary and felt it justified. And like, obviously I, I, they are wrong and I believe they are wrong, but they were so fully convinced of their cause. And it just feels like we have gone off on some terrible track that those people think that they need to storm the U S government, you know, in, in this pursuit of this cause, like it was just depressing and horrifying. Depressing and horrifying, unlike this podcast, which has been <laughs> delightful, delightful and elucidating. Uh, what do you think you'll ever come back and like do the the real nitty gritty campaign stuff again? Or are you going to be happy to just are, are you like everybody else in your business who says, what we're really interested in is corporate clients? Or are you, <laughs> are you, do, you th- do you think you'll ever come back? Do you miss it? I think I miss aspects of it. I, I mean you know, running the committee or working on the house floor were probably the most fun and exciting jobs that you can imagine. One of my friends who's not in politics, I was describing my job. She's like, it's like sports for nerds. And I'm like, yeah, this is probably as close as I'm going to get to being a professional athlete. Um, but, um, you know, there are parts about it I miss, but there's also, you know, at this point in my life, this is a good spot for me. And I don't know, we'll see. I never, I, you know, I, I thought I was going to be a lawyer at a big corporate <laughs> firm 20 years ago. So I clearly have no idea. Um, but yeah, I, we'll see what happens. Well, we came to do an autopsy and we found a live one in you, Parker Poling. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thanks. It was a pleasure. 